time together this morning, and we thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. You gave of your very life, God, and you ask us to give our very life to you. So God, I pray that you'd give us insight and understanding of what that looks like this morning, that we might better worship and glorify you as we come to you. Speak to us now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the uh, Gospel of Mark, of course, chapter 12. And uh, as we talk about the real Jesus, and of course, on, in your bulletin, you have pictures of, of Jesus on the cover. You know, and the, the one in the middle, I, I love that one. Um, and it's symbolic of a lot of the ways that we see Jesus with green eyes. Uh, sometimes there's the blue, blue-eyed Jesus even though he was Palestinian. Um, and uh, Rembrandt was the first one to really kind of reclaim a, a better image of who Jesus was. Uh, and uh, I don't, there's not really a picture here by Rembrandt, but these are the ones that we, we typically see and we, we typically think of. And the, the issue is sometimes with not only our visualization of Jesus, but within our own minds, we come up with a Jesus that is palatable for us, the Jesus that we want, but it's sometimes very different from the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the Scriptures. And so as we talk about that this morning, we are yet going to look at another story that uh, most of you kind of look upon this one affectionately. And you, you look at this story and you think, boy, that's that's neat. That was a neat story that Jesus gave there. And I'll tell you one, it just kind of wrecked me this week. Uh, you know, that we've had some we've had some difficult ones we looked at, but this one just really bothered me. <laughs> and as we look at this text and this story this morning, uh, I, I want to just say right up front that I know this text is sometimes used to uh, to manipulate people and to abuse people uh, financially. Uh, I, I get that, and I look at that, and I, I think that's uh, an atrocity. And uh, I, I want to make sure we understand that that's not uh, the purpose this morning as we look at our text. It's, it's the next story, and, it, and again, it should convict all of us, uh, and it convict those of us. Uh, who have been blessed more than, than anyone. And so as we look at that context, uh, it's difficult because as I look out over the congregation, I know there are people who've lost jobs. I know there are single moms and there are single dads and people who have a difficult time. And I hope uh, that this gives you hope uh, and not a, a, a sense of guilt as we look at this, because I believe that's what God intended and I believe that's what Christ intended. So uh, with that said and with that understanding it kind of reminds me as we approach this text about Paul Harvey. I remember one time I told a story about this lady who um, called the Butterball hotline. Butterball has this hotline for their turkeys basically for customer service purposes. And he was telling a story about how this lady called and said, look, I've had this deep freeze and um, it was my, my mom's and She's been living with us for the last 25 or 26 years. And when I got to cleaning it out after she passed away, I noticed in the bottom of it there was a turkey. And uh, I, I estimate this turkey is probably about 23 years old. And it's been frozen the whole time. And I was just wondering if it's okay to eat it. And uh, the, guy, the, the lady from Butterball, she said, well, technically, she said, since it's been frozen, if it's been uh, set at, you know, 32 degrees or below, said, you should be okay but I can tell you right now, you're not going to like it. Uh, it's not, it's going to be very dry and you won't enjoy this turkey, but, um, but you should be okay for helping, but I would probably encourage you not to eat it. She goes, well, that's exactly what I thought. I think I'm just going to give it to the church. And, uh, 
So as, I, as we get into this story, I'm, re- I'm reminded of that. As we look at the real Jesus, we'll see the reality of Christ, the reality of deception, the reality of giving. We'll start here in the 35th verse of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. So Jesus asked this question as he taught in the temple complex. Jesus is still teaching in the temple complex. And we talked about that. He's probably somewhere around the uh, courts of the Gentiles. It's a place where teaching often transpired. Remember, he has cleansed this area. And since he's done that, uh, there has been much animosity after him. He has dealt with debate and question after question that have sought to discredit him. Now Jesus is going to turn the table and he's going to ask the question. You know, it's a great apologetics uh, lesson right here for us. Sometimes the best response uh, to people who question the faith is not so much an easy answer as another question. Another question. You know, sometimes people will, I know uh, we've got one of our scientists here today who deals with the creationism and um, and with that issue. And sometimes the, the be- better response than us trying to explain it is to ask the question, exactly how do you think things evolved if there wasn't a creator? Do you really think that out of nothing life formed and life began? So sometimes the question is bigger and more important than the answer. And Jesus questions them for the first time. They've been looking at debates that were pretty prevalent during this era and he hits them with one that he knows they don't have a good answer for. And so he quotes Psalms 110 here. And this is what he does. So Jesus asked the question as he taught in the temple complex. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit. And uh, coincidentally or incidentally here, um, we see the we see the Trinity. We see David speaking under the power of the Holy Spirit. We see this reference to the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus, the Son of God, to be Jesus, God in the flesh. And we see Yahweh God here. The Lord, Yahweh, declared to my master, uh, the Messiah, whom we know to be Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How can the Messiah be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. Now, some of this gets lost in translation for us today because this isn't a part of our culture. And most of us have a, a pretty good understanding that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and that he was also uh, the God in the flesh. So he was God in the flesh. He was fully man. He was fully God. And so most of us have a little background, at least in church today, of that. And we understand that context. But the pervasive thinking of that day, uh, almost exclusively, uh, all of the rabbis pretty much taught that the Messiah was a great man who would come and deliver us uh, from the oppression of the Roman government, would deliver us and reestablish our nation. So he would be a great man, but no one said that he was going to be God in the flesh. Virtually none of the rabbis taught that. Now, you can go back and sit in the prophecies. You can see how the prophets alluded to that fact. But in that day, the day of Jesus, there wasn't anyone walking around teaching that the Messiah was going to be God. All right. So what what that means in this context, uh, if you had an offspring, if you had children in your lineage, it was just common practice that they would refer to you quite frankly, as Lord or Master. If you were a patriarch, that's the way that they would refer to you, but you never would do that downwardly. In other words, you would never call your child Lord or Master, just like you wouldn't do it today. Or your grandkids or your great-grandkids, you would never refer to them in that manner. 
And so the problem with this text right here, if they only take Jesus to be a man, the Messiah to be a man, is why would David call him Lord under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Why would David refer to him as Lord? Well, there can only be one answer. And that is, in fact, that he was the Lord. He was the master, that he was to be God in the flesh. Blowing their context for how they understood the passage. Also, um, opening the door for them to understand and to see that he literally was the Christ, that he was God in the flesh. And this would all come together later. But in this context, this is difficult. This deconstructs what they understood the Messiah to be. So we see the reality of Christ. And we continue on in the next passage, and it says there's a warning against the scribes. He also said in his teachings, beware of the scribes. Now, who are the scribes? The scribes are the lawyers. They're the interpreters of the law. And remember, the law, it was they were in a theocratic uh, government, so to speak. Of course, you had the Roman dominion over them, but then they were able to exercise their basic uh, principles of law uh, in a, theatic, a theocratic manner, which really ran through the priest and the scribes. The scribes were the lawyers of that day. They were the ones who primarily interpreted the law, and they were primarily of the Pharisee, Pharisees sect that we talked about last week. The scribes go around in long robes and want greetings in the marketplaces, the front seats in the synagogues, and the places of honors at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers for show. They will receive harsher punishment. So Jesus says, I know those who interpret the law, those who have authority over you right now. They put on the long robes and they say lengthy prayers, but they are also devouring widows' houses. What is he talking about, devouring Widows' houses. Well, because they were the authority, and when a uh, when a w- woman would lose her husband, typically, uh, if there wasn't a child there to step up, uh, it would go before the courts how things would be constructed. Uh, because because if she was really poor, she was no longer going to have to pay theoretically the temple tax. They may t- they may uh, at that point take some of her resources and put it into the tax and put it into the temple, uh, or they could do multiple other things. But it was really left up to the discretion of the courts at this time. And Jesus is saying, you're taking the most vulnerable individuals in our society, and you're taking advantage of them. And then he says this, you're going to receive the harsher judgment. Now, we don't have time to get in this sermon. I know this is very disturbing uh, to a lot of you. It's been disturbing uh, when I've when I've stated it before, but... You know, here's a hard part of this, and we're not going to go down this road, but a hard part of this is that Jesus very candidly here, and we've already already seen this two other places in the Gospel of Mark, says there are some things that you do that there is going to be a harsher judgment for. There's going to be a harsher penalty for. And um, I know we don't like to think about that. We like to say sin is sin. It's all the same in God's eyes. And let me say, one sin separates us from God. Absolutely, that is true. And uh, that's all it takes is one sin to separate us from a holy God. But Jesus lets us know that there are some things that you're going to receive condemnation for. Uh, and there are some things that there's going to be a greater degree of punishment for those who take advantage of the weak and the helpless, for those who exploit those who cannot defend themselves. Now, again, that's another sermon for the death of the day. I welcome your calls and emails. But you probably need to take that with Jesus. He just said it. Okay, so you can get mad at him. He shouldn't have said that, maybe you think, but he said it anyway. And um, that part doesn't disturb me. We'll go into the part that really disturbs me. Now for the part that bothers me a lot. Um, you know, we've been talking about these passages and how Jesus is making statements. 
that um, are not easily acceptable. And now he gives a story that most people will be okay with, but it bothers me. And, uh, you know, God really had to, to work on me on this story this week because of just some of the reasons I've already stated. Sitting across from the temple treasury, Jesus, it's speaking about Jesus, says, and it said he watched how the crowd dropped their money into the treasury. Now, <clears throat> I've got a, this is an exact replica of the shekel coin, and there was a shekel tax. And uh, what's interesting is that um, they uh, they would bring this money, and uh, they would give it, and there were 13 different receptacles. Matter of fact, um, let's go ahead and show the two mites here. I'm going to go ahead and show you the different money. There's there's a shekel I have right here, and then I actually have the mites as well, but they're so small you can't hardly see them. And uh, I'll, I'll pick those up here in just a moment for you. But what was happening, Jesus said he was noticing, he was watching how people were giving this money. He was watching, literally the Greek word is throw, how they were throwing their money into the temple. And these were brass. Matter of fact, let's go to the other picture, if you would, Terry. Uh, it might look something like this, maybe a little bigger. Matter of fact, uh, Josephus tells us that they were actually shofar uh, offerings. So they were actually like a horn uh, that you would throw into, and it was made of metal. And uh, Jesus said he's watching, which doesn't that disturb you a little bit? It kind of bothers me just reading that, that Jesus is watching Jesus is watching people giving their offering. I, I doubt he had his arms folded when he did that. But um, he's watching them give their offering, and they're throwing it in to the coffer. And everybody hears it. It's probably louder than that. And they're throwing it in. Jesus is watching this. And the Bible says, Many rich people were putting in large sums, and a poor widow came and dropped in Two tiny coins worth very little. They were two, we call them widow's mites. These are actually leptas. This is, a, a, again, a, what, exactly what they look like. They're so small you can't hardly see them. Uh, Terry, go back to that picture. You can see them in the hands. That's literally how small they are. And these were the smallest units of coinage that existed in that time. And two lepta were worth about eight, uh, eight minutes of wages. Okay, It was enough to buy uh, just a small a uh, small bit of flour, enough to make a small biscuit. It was a, a meager beggar's meal is what you could buy with two leptas. As a matter of fact, rabbinical law, and this is not from the Bible, said that you, you, if you gave an offering, you had to give at least two of these because they were much the way that we look at pennies now. And so the widow has these two leptas, but the wealthy are throwing in their big coins. And it's clanging, it's making the noise. And everybody hears it and everybody knows it that's in the surrounding area. But she comes and she drops in the two leptas. Hardly discernible if there's noise going on around. And Jesus says, summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the temple treasury. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty and has put in everything she possessed and all that she has to live on. Now, that little part right there bothers me for a couple of different reasons. Number one, it, it, it bothers me because remember what we just read? We just read about the scribes and those in authority and how they have abused their position, how they have taken widows' houses in how they have lined their pockets, and Jesus doesn't say anything about it. 
he chastises them. He, ch- he tells the crowd what they're doing. And there's also a reference to, if you'll remember the vineyard, they're like the vineyard workers. He makes a, a reference to them. But then this widow comes up with all that she has, her two leptas. And the Bible makes it clear Jesus and his divine knowledge said that's, that's all she has. And she puts it in. And if, if we go back and we look at the story of um, 1 Kings chapter 17, the widow of Zerphat, we know the widow of Zerphat, Elijah comes to her and says, uh, would you make me something to eat? And she goes, I don't have anything. She said, all I have, uh, all I have is enough for a, a small piece of bread, small piece of bread. She goes, my, my little boy and I were going to go eat that and then we're going to die. We got nothing else. And he said, that's all we have. That's all we have in our life. If you go back to this text right here, Terry, if you'll put the verse, last verse back up there, it says that she gave out of her poverty. The Greek word there for poverty really would be better translated because the word literally that's in the Greek there is bios. She gave out of her bios. The word we have for bios is life. That's what, we, what it means today, bios. She gave out of her very life. She gave her life existence. Just like the widow at Zerphat, which she probably would have known that story, she comes... And all she has left is a little bit. And, you know, there were two, there were 13 offering receptacles and about six, four, five, six of them were for free wills. The rest were for the taxes. The rest were for their tithes, so to speak. But she comes to the free will offering and she takes that little handful of grain. She takes, that's what two mites could, could buy. That which she would have eaten that day and she pours it in. And that disturbs me. Because often, although I'm not making noise with it, I'm giving out of what I have that really doesn't affect and impact me that much. You see, what she gave had a great impact on her. And Jesus is saying what what they gave, it didn't change where they went to eat. It didn't change what clothes they bought. It didn't change where they went on vacation. It didn't change anything about their life. But for her, it put her in a position where we was, she was totally dependent upon God. You know, it, it was good for me. I, I had a chance to talk to three different people this week, um, all of them who had been in that situation. Two of them were widows, and one of them was a guy who grew up uh, in a family. Matter of fact, he was in the last service. Uh, there were six he had six brothers and sisters, and their dad had left him when he was uh, just a young boy. And so his mom uh, had literally had to get government food and worked each day. Had to get uh, had to get a fare just to go downtown Denver to uh, to go to work. And uh, he talked about how hard it was, and how sometimes they would just have broth and then get some crackers and kind of mash them up, and that's that's what they would have for the day. And he said, you know, but what was interesting about my mom is if a neighbor needed something. Even if it was our last two dollars, even if it was, you know, a last piece of bread, she would give it to him. And, and she said, I remember some night she'd be crying about, you know, what am I going to do for tomorrow? I don't even have uh, the tokens of the fair to go to work tomorrow. And she goes in something would show up on our porch. You know, food would show up on our porch or somebody would leave a ten dollar bill. And he said, and it just always worked. And I look back and I'm so thankful for what my mom taught me. And how she worked so hard and how we made it. And I, and I look at that story and he said, when I read it, I think, yeah, that's what God did for my family. That's exactly what happened. I talked to, to another, I talked to a lady last night who's a widow and who has three children. And she told me the story 
about how, you know, when her husband got sick before he died and uh, she was not working and she was giving, she goes, and she, I felt convicted to tie. And I said, OK, God, I'm going to give you a chance at this. And she goes, and I would write that check each month, literally knowing, wondering how on earth are we going to make it? And we did. God would just supply. And she goes, and there came a time where she said, and it still happens to this day, even though I don't need it today. She goes that somebody every year at Christmas would put $10,000 in our mailbox. And she goes, I remember after that first time I did it, how that showed up months later. And she goes, it's happened uh, for the last uh, 10 years. It's just been happening over and over again. And she goes, and I read that story and I think that's exactly what God has done for me. He has met my every need. She goes, so when I look at that, I think, yeah, I resonate that. That is an encouragement to me. That's inspiration to me. It's good to hear that perspective because if you're like me, you think, don't do that. Don't depend on God like that. Don't do that because because we don't. That's why. It makes us feel bad at the end of the day. We feel bad for them because we feel bad for us. And we don't live that way. We don't live in a way where we say, God, I'm really going to trust you. And if it means giving my last two leftists, so to speak, then so be it. Because rabbinic law said I couldn't just give one. I don't know what you'd have done with one anyway. Buy four pieces of grain. But she gave both. If that had not disturbed you, I don't know what does. You're not really listening today. Uh, because it, it bothers me. Because I'm convicted that often I don't give out of my life. That often I don't give till it hurts. You might say, well, where did the money go? That's where we are. We always get wrapped up. What is the, I want to, you know, I'd give if I knew what was happening to it. If I knew exactly where it was going and I knew it was being used properly, then I'd give. You know what's interesting about this story? And this ought to disturb you. This disturbs me too. Jesus just said, these guys are scoundrels. I mean, they're scoundrels. They've been ripping people off. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 13, you know how he starts it off? He said, you see this temple here? It's going to be completely obliterated. And that happens in about 30 years. So, I mean, I'm looking at this, and on one hand, he's saying, the priests are taking advantage of the situation and the scribes. And then you're saying that one day this temple's not going to exist. And then you affirm the woman for giving her last two mites. Jesus, what gives here? What are you thinking? You know what I think he's thinking? Is that it ain't about what you gave. It's not about how much you just did. It's about your heart. You see, you give, you give it to the Lord. And God really doesn't need your money, contrary to what some people might say. God really doesn't need it. He's going to be fine without it. He's going to go on. The kingdom's going to reign. He'll be just fine. The question is, how will you be? And Jesus says, I want you to give me your life. And that's the picture here. She gives her life. And you know what I bet? I bet this wasn't her first time. You see, it wasn't hard for her because she'd done it before. She had been down to her last two cents before. And somehow God, the same God who carried her through the death of her husband in a culture that we can't even imagine what it's like to be a widow. The same God who had been with her when she was down to her last two pennies. The same God who had been with her when she didn't have a penny was going to be the same God that would carry her. She believed it and just lived it. And so she gave her life. Literally. And that's what he did for us. That's what he asked from us. So the interesting thing is he doesn't even address that. We know that 
the free will offerings, according to David Garland, who is a uh, expert scholar on the book of Mark, he said it, it would have gone uh, to, it, she probably was giving a free will offering. And the free will offering went to the temple. It went to the temple upkeep. It went to the temple uh, building itself. And that's what she was probably giving to. The rest of the tithes went for three things. It went to the priest, went for the festivals, and it went to the poor. That's where it went. And Jesus affirms her giving. Jesus affirms her heart. So what does that teach us? What can we glean? What can we learn from that? Well, first of all, God measures giving not by what we give, but by what we keep. The value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. It's not the the amount, it's how much does it cost you? How much does it impact you? God measures the gift by the heart of the sacrifice. The truth of it is, we ought to say this. I was talking to a gentleman yesterday, he said, you know, he said, I, we often have those times when we write our check, when we give, we go, you know, if we didn't do this, we could do this. And that ought to be true for us. If we want to know if our heart's right, we want to know if our giving's enough. Our giving's enough when it changes the way that we live, when it costs us to do it. Otherwise, we're, we're just throwing the plate out of the margins. Aren't you glad you came today? So, how can I know if I'm giving in a manner that indicates I'm giving in my life? When it affects the way I live, when I give without expectations, and when your giving comes from a thankful heart. You notice, we don't see the story that she gave this money and then she got all that she needed. She was rich after that. She probably wasn't. She probably, this probably happened to her multiple times. There's not a promise in Scripture, guys, that if you give enough, that you'll get rich. That is a sham. God never promises it. He doesn't even really address it, quite frankly. We misinterpret some things and, you know, we're we're not that different than we were 2,000 years ago in a lot of respect. So she didn't give with an expectation of what she was giving. She was giving of her life. She was giving of her worship. She was giving of her praise. She was giving of what she had. And not only that, not only did she not have an expectation that she'd get something back, she was giving as an attitude of thanksgiving. But just two mites. I mean, how do you get? How are you thankful when you got two pennies? She was. Because maybe she saw a bigger picture. Then it wasn't about the amount of money that she had, but that God was faithfully her Lord. That she could trust Him, that He was her sustaining entity. It wasn't what she saved. It wasn't what she accomplished. It was just Him. I stop and I look at that. That is a beautiful picture. That is a beautiful example. And I'm convicted by it. It makes me think of, uh, there was a little girl whose name was um, Hattie. Uh, Hattie Hattie Mites actually was her name, or excuse me, Hattie Wyatt was her name. And uh, back at the turn of the century in the early 1900s, her pastor B.H. Harold was 
uh, at the uh, what they then called the uh, Temple Street, or excuse me, the Grace Street Baptist Church in Philadelphia. And uh, while she was there, uh, one Sunday she was she was from a very poor neighborhood. Uh, she's about seven years old. She was she was walking out the steps as the pastor was walking from his study back to the to the sanctuary, and he saw her crying. He said, "What's the matter, honey?" She said, "Well." They told me there wasn't enough room for any more children today. And uh, he looked at her and her clothes were very simple. Uh, she was obviously poor. And he said, you know what, honey, I think I can get you in. So he took Hattie and took her to class and got her in. And it was about four weeks later, he got a message that Hattie had died. She had uh, contracted dysentery and she died. And her parents had him come over. They made the arrangements. And before the funeral, the, the father told uh Dr. Carey said, look, um, I want to give you something. Hattie had been saving this money. It's 57 cents that she wanted to help build a, a building for the children so that no child would ever be told they didn't have enough room for them. So he took that money and he looked at it and he said, you know, I was thinking we might build something maybe 10 years from now. I thought about it, but this just wasn't the time. And he said, I took it to the deacons and we began to pray and and um, he said, you know, we decided, you know what, we are going to build a children's building. So we bought a lot, and we ended up buying a couple of lots, and we used that money, and we, we t- shared that story, and people began to give. And one person gave $10,000, which was a huge amount at that time. The landowner uh, was able to come down on the price and finance it at 5%, uh, which ironically is what our church is financed at, but nevertheless, um, and gave it gave it to them. At a, at a kind of a lease for finance, and um, and from there they built that building, and from there they took that same uh, that same land as they expanded it, and they built the Good Samaritan Hospital exempt that exists today, and then became Temple University, and now Temple Baptist Church is a 33 seat 3300 seat auditorium. It all started with a little girl who took her 57 cents, who didn't really have anything else. And God took the little and He made much. That's the God that we worship and serve. So you shouldn't give because God's going to give you give you a lot of money back. You shouldn't give because God's going to get you if you don't. But we give because He's given His life to us. Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. And literally... He was naked upon the cross. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. Literally, He was thirsty upon the cross. I was in prison. He was in prison. And you visited me. And some would say, Jesus, when did we do this? He said, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. What does Jesus have of you today? Let's pray. God, I pray that we would learn what it means to give our life. That we'd learn that you're not nearly as pressed with giving as we are, but you're more concerned about our heart. We are so uptight about the amount and about how it's being spent and what's happening. And the truth of it is we're just afraid. We're afraid to give you control. We're afraid to let it impact our lives because then we have to really trust You. God, I pray this for me. I am convicted by this this story, by this true story that has been shared here today. 
God, I pray that you would forgive me of sometimes simply giving in out of the margin, of giving my 10% of giving just what's expected, Lord. I pray that you would convict us to give out of our life to where it impacts our life so that we might impact your kingdom, that you might transform our hearts. If there's one that doesn't know you today, Lord, I pray that you would convict them to know you. In your name I pray. Amen.